podcast from Two and Mike is, I think it's really cool and um, that is what I wanted to say. Two and a mic. Guy de Montpassant was a French author who became known as a master of the short storytelling form. He was born in 1850 near Dieppe to prosperous bourgeois parents. At the age of 11, Guy experienced the difficulties his mother went through to obtain a separation from her physically abusive husband, his father. She was successful in so doing and her son stayed with her. She became the most influential figure in his early life. At school, he met Gustave Flaubert, a leading literary realist of the time, and on one occasion, Guy even saved him from drowning. After the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, when Guy enlisted as a volunteer, he moved to Paris to become a clerk in the Navy Department. Flaubert took Guy under his wing and guided him through the early stages of his career in journalism and literature. His access to this elevated art scene allowed him to meet other notables at Flaubert's home, including Emile Zola and Ivan Turgenov, and many other proponents of realism and naturalism. He was also notable, along with Alexander Dumas, in not liking the Eiffel Tower He ate in the restaurant at its base, so that he did not have to look upon it. He wrote his own epitaph. I have coveted everything, and taken pleasure in nothing. Bellflower by Guy de Montpassant How strange! are those old recollections which haunt us without our being able to get rid of them. This one is so very old that I cannot understand how it has clung so vividly and tenaciously to my memory. Since then I have seen so many sinister things, either affecting or terrible, that I am astonished at not being able to pass a single day without the face of Mother Bellflower recurring to my mind's eye, just as I knew her formerly long, long ago, when I was ten or twelve years old. She was an old seamstress who came to my parents' house once a week, every Thursday, to mend their linen. My parents lived in one of those country houses called Chateau, which are merely old houses with pointed roofs, to which are attached three or four adjacent farms. The village, a large village, almost a small market town, was a few hundred yards off and nestled round the church, a red brick church, 
which had become black with age. Well, every Thursday, Mother Bellflower came between half past six and seven in the morning and went immediately into the linen room and began to work. She was a tall, thin, bearded, or rather hairy woman, for she had a beard all over her face, a surprising, unexpected beard, growing in improbable tufts, in curly bunches, which looked as if they had been sewn by a madman over that great face, the face of a gendarme in petticoats. She had them on her nose, under her nose, round her nose, on her chin, on her cheeks and her eyebrows, which were extraordinarily thick and long and quite grey, bushy and bristling, looked exactly like a pair of moustaches stuck on there by mistake. She limped, not like lame people generally do, but like a ship pitching. When she planted her great bony vibrant body on her sound leg, she seemed to be preparing to mount some enormous wave, and then suddenly she dipped as if to disappear in an abyss and buried herself in the ground. Her walk reminded one of a ship in a storm, and her head, which was always covered with an enormous white cap, whose ribbons fluttered down her back, seemed to traverse the horizon from north to south and from south to north at each limp. I adored Mother Bellflower. As soon as I was up, I used to go into the linen room, where I found her installed at work with a foot warmer under her feet. As soon as I arrived, she made me take the foot warmer and sit upon it, so that I might not catch cold in that large chilly room under the roof. That draws the blood from your head, she would say to me. She told me stories while mending the linen with her long, crooked, nimble fingers behind her magnifying spectacles for age had impaired her sight. Her eyes appeared enormous to me, strangely profound. Double. As far as I can remember from the things which she told me, and by which my childish heart was moved, she had the large heart of a poor woman. She told me what had happened in the village, how a cow had escaped from the cowhouse, and had been found the next morning in front of Prosper Mallet's mill, looking at the sails turning, or about a hen's egg which had been found in the church belfry without anyone being able to understand what creature had been there to lay it, or the queer story of Jean Pillar's dog, who had gone ten leagues to bring back his master's breeches, which a tramp had stolen while they were hanging up to dry out of doors, after he had been caught in the rain. She told me of these simple adventures in such a manner that in my mind they assumed the proportions of never-to-be-forgotten dramas, of grand and mysterious poems, and the ingenious stories invented by the poets, which my mother told me in the evening had none of the flavour, none of the fullness or of the vigour of the peasant woman's narratives. Well, 
One Thursday, when I had spent all the morning in listening to Mother Clochette, I wanted to go upstairs to her again during the day, after picking hazelnuts with the manservant in the wood behind the farm. I remember it all as clearly as what happened only yesterday. On opening the door of the linen room, I saw the old seamstress lying on the floor by the side of her chair, her face turned down and her arms stretched out, but still holding her needle in one hand and one of my shirts in the other, one of her legs in a blue stocking, the longer one, no doubt, was extended under her chair, and her spectacles glistened by the wall where they had rolled away from her. I ran away uttering shrill cries. They all came running, and in a few minutes I was told that Mother Clochette was dead. I cannot describe the profound, poignant, terrible emotion which stirred my childish heart. I went slowly down into the drawing room and hid myself in a corner in the depths of a great old armchair where I knelt and wept. I remained there for a long time, no doubt, for night came on. Suddenly someone came in with a lamp, without seeing me, however, and heard my father and mother talking with the medical man, whose voice I recognized. He had been sent for immediately, and he was explaining the cause of the accident, of which I understood nothing, however. Then he sat down and had a glass of liqueur and a biscuit. He went on talking, and what he then said will remain engraved on my mind until I die. I think that I can give the exact words which he used. Ah, he said. The poor woman. She broke her leg the day of my arrival here. I had not even had time to wash my hands after getting off the diligence before I was sent for in all haste, for it was a bad case, very bad. She was seventeen and a pretty girl, very pretty. Would anyone believe it? I have never told her story before. In fact, no one but myself and one other person who is no longer living in this part of the country ever knew it. Now that she is dead, I may be less discreet. A young assistant teacher had just come to live in the village. He was good-looking and had the bearing of a soldier. All the girls ran after him, but he was disdainful. Besides that, he was very much afraid of his superior, the schoolmaster, old Grabu, who occasionally got out of bed the wrong foot first. Old Grabu already employed pretty Hortense, who has just died here, and who was afterward named Clochette. 
The assistant master singled out the pretty young girl, who was no doubt flattered at being chosen by this disdainful conqueror. At any rate, she fell in love with him, and he succeeded in persuading her to give him a first meeting in the hayloft behind the school at night, after she had done her day's sewing. She pretended to go home, but instead of going downstairs when she left the graboos, she went upstairs and hid among the hay to wait for her lover. He soon joined her, and he was beginning to say pretty things to her when the door of the hayloft opened, and the schoolmaster appeared and asked, What are you doing up there, Sigisbert? Feeling sure that he would be caught, the young schoolmaster lost his presence of mind and replied stupidly, I came up here to rest a little among the bundles of hay, Monsieur Grabou. The loft was very large and absolutely dark. Sigisbert pushed the frightened girl to the farther end and said, Go there and hide yourself. I shall lose my situation, so get away and hide yourself. When the schoolmaster heard the whispering, he continued, Why, you are not by yourself? Yes, I am, Monsieur Grabou. But you are not, for you are talking. I swear I am, Monsieur Grabou. I will soon find out, the old man replied, and double-locking the door, he went down to get a light. Then the young man, who was a coward such as one sometimes meets, lost his head, and he repeated, having grown furious all of a sudden, Hide yourself, so that he may not find you. You will deprive me of my bread for my whole life. You will ruin my whole career. Do hide yourself. They could hear the key turning in the lock again, and Hortense ran to the window which looked out onto the street, opened it quickly, and then in a low and determined voice said, You will come and pick me up when he is gone. And she jumped out. Old Grabu found nobody, and went down again in great surprise. A quarter of an hour later, Monsieur Sigisbert came to me and related his adventure. The girl had remained at the foot of the wall, unable to get up, as she had fallen from the second story, and I went with him to fetch her. It was raining in torrents, and I brought the unfortunate girl home with me, for the right leg was broken in three places, and the bones had come out through the flesh. She did not complain and merely said with admirable resignation, I am punished, well punished. I sent for assistance and the work girl's friends and told them a made-up story of a runaway carriage which had knocked her down and lamed her outside my door. They believed me, and the gendarmes for a whole month tried in vain to find the author of this accident. That is all. Now I say that this woman was a heroine, 
and had the fibre of those who accomplished the grandest deeds in history. That was her only love affair, and she died a virgin. She was a martyr, a noble soul, a sublimely devoted woman, and if I did not absolutely admire her, I should not have told you this story, which I would never tell anyone during her life. You understand why. The doctor ceased. Mama cried. And Papa said some words which I did not catch. Then they left the room. And I remained on my knees in the armchair and sobbed when I heard a strange noise of heavy footsteps and something knocking against the side of the staircase. They were carrying away Clochette's body. Bellflower seems a very personal story in some ways. The main character is struck by a powerful recurring memory of a tragic event that echoed in his mind, not only for having experienced it himself, but because it allowed him to hear a tale from many years earlier that made him reflect so deeply upon some of his prejudices. There is a depth of reflection in the telling of what befell the young Hortense, how she so quietly and sweetly accepted her fate, despite all that could have been expected of her to have enjoyed. Her loss for having never experienced love, love-making, maternity, or the sense of being needed by someone so completely and unconditionally in love. This sense of injustice always reverberates around my mind, because I am minded of the words of Tennyson. It's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Yet somehow Hortense finds peace with her lot in embracing the young boy who recounts his tale, in mending his clothes and mothering him. In contrast to the suffering of Hortense is the selfishness and opportunism of Sigisbert, who had the bearing of a soldier and who had just come to the village and was in the employ of the schoolmaster Old Grabu, who was also the employer of Hortense. Sigisbert, in looking to take advantage of the lovely young girl, was caught in the hayloft, and rather than accepting the consequences of his actions, shooed Hortense to find a way out that would protect him from punishment. Her immense inner strength and inner beauty allowed Hortense to have chosen to save him, to not cry out over her severe injuries and to wait for him to return, speak volumes of her and very little of him. The story seems to speak in some part of de Maupassant's life, his youth living in a chateau, the abuse visited upon his mother, her strength of character, his having been raised with an influential woman to care for him. The style of language is immediately familiar, for example, she limped, not like lame people generally do, but like a ship pitching. 
When she planted her great, bony, vibrant body on her sound leg, she seemed to be preparing to mount some enormous wave, and then suddenly she dipped as if to disappear in an abyss and buried herself in the ground. Her walk reminded one of a ship in a storm. On the other hand, the language was very effective in its simplicity and cutting in its directness. It was raining in torrents, and I brought the unfortunate girl home with me, for the right leg was broken in three places, and the bones had come out through the flesh. There are many thoughts to reflect upon, so many elements that speak to me of modern times even. Whenever I read something hateful, ridiculous, or offensive in its misdirection and dishonesty on social media, for example, I don't always respond. I don't always scream out in pain. Hortense could have been an early tutor of mine had I known of her. I wish I had done. Maybe one such as her would have saved me the heartache of the consequences of expressing myself. I hope you found the story as touching and inspiring as I did. Thank you, Guy. Two, two.